And when I say key employees, those are people that have access to really important confidential information within the company. I think, um, you know, your CFO, your chief marketing officer, people that are involved in strategy decisions, people that are involved in product development, people that if they went to a competitor could really hurt the company. And I think that's the first question that the employer has to ask themselves and be honest with the answer, right? If this person leaves, assuming they're good at their job, will they hurt my business? And if the answer is yes, then it's probably worth, you know, exploring whether a non-compete agreement with that person will make sense and, and what the restraint should be in, in that non-compete. Good morning, HR. I'm Mike Coffey, and this is the podcast where I talk to business leaders about bringing people together to create value for shareholders, customers, and the community. Please follow, rate, and review Good Morning HR on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, or at goodmorninghr.com. As unemployment continues near record lows, and businesses continue focusing on recruiting actively employed workers, many employers are looking to non-compete agreements to make it a little harder for their employees to move to their competitors. Traditionally reserved for executives and highly specialized employees, some employers are even asking lower wage employees to sign non-competes. Critics of non-compete agreements like the Federal Trade Commission Chairwoman Lena Kahn say that employers are applying them too broadly especially in the case of low-wage workers. We covered this topic in the very first episode of Good Morning HR with my friend Jim Zeta, but as the issue seems to keep coming up, it seems appropriate to revisit it. So I've invited Lisa Dolge to join in our 50th episode of Good Morning HR. Lisa is a managing partner of the Dolge Law Group. She is a board-certified labor and employment law attorney in Texas and represents both employers and employees. She has been selected to Best Lawyers Under 40 by D Magazine four years in a row. Welcome to Good Morning HR, Lisa. Good morning and thank you for having me. So let's start with the basics. What is a non-compete agreement? So a non-compete agreement in a nutshell is a restriction on an employee once they leave the employment as far as where they can work. Does it, does it have to name a specific employer that they can't go work for? Or how do you, how does that frame? Can I say you can never work in fast food again? Or Well, you can say whatever you want as an employer. <laughs> we certainly see a lot of employers, you know, defining non-competition differently. But generally speaking, it's tied to a particular geographic area. So normally uh, we'll see, you know, uh, a non-compete restraint that's tied, for example, to a particular county or to an area where the company is doing business or to a particular radius. So an employer can say, my business is located at you know 2100 Ross Avenue in Dallas and you cannot work within 25 mile radius of that location. So th that would be kind of a typical restriction that we would see. But we're in 2022 and everybody works remote and how does that play in? So, I mean, is geography even relevant in a world where two engineers can work together from Texas and Nebraska and on the same project? Yeah, you know, that's an interesting question that you were asking. I actually, I would have expected to see more agreements specifically addressing remote work 
since the pandemic has you know begun in 2020 but i haven't seen a lot of companies rewrite their agreements to address remote work so i think what a lot of companies are relying on is just the fact that you cannot compete in a certain geographic area period whether you are actually physically located in that area or if you're working let's say in colorado but you're still doing business in that geographic area so it's it still limits employees from doing work within a certain geographic territory. That's interesting. What are, are is if you were to do a non-compete that didn't have a geographic limitation, would that, is there a reason not to do that? Or is it just people just haven't, companies just haven't thought through uh, the ramifications of remote work? I mean, you can, you can certainly, I think a lot of companies have not thought it through. I mean, no one likes to go back and review their employment agreements and update them. It's just, it seems boring. It seems unnecessary. Most of the companies will coast by on the employment agreements they already have until an issue arises and that requires them to rewrite the agreement. So I think a lot of companies have not been proactive about it. But most of the agreements, if they're drafted correctly, they will address remote work. So if if the phrasing covers competition within a certain geographic area, it doesn't matter if you are competing from outside of that geographic area, sort of reaching into it, or if you are physically located within that area. If, if the agreement is drafted strongly enough, it would cover both scenarios. And so these are actually legally enforceable contracts, right? These agreements. So it's not just, we prefer you not to do this. Correct. In the state of Texas, a non-compete agreement is enforceable if it meets certain requirements. And I think a lot of people have a misconception about it. There's definitely uh, this urban myth that non-compete agreements are not enforceable, right? And people like to cite to California, which does not enforce them. But each state has their own rules. And in Texas, if the agreements, we actually have a statute that says that if agreement is written a certain way and meets certain requirements, that a non-compete agreement is enforceable. So what are those necessary elements for it to be, for a non-compete to be enforceable? So first of all, it has to be quote unquote ancillary to another agreement, which means it has to be part of another agreement, basically, um, such as a confidentiality agreement or an employment agreement or a buy-sell agreement for a company. It has to be supported by consideration, which is a legal term for basically the company has to give an employee something in return for their promise not to compete. And then the third requirement is that the restrictions in the non-compete agreement must be reasonable. Now, the statute doesn't really define what reasonable is. And so that becomes the big fodder for litigation in a lot of cases, uh, whether the geographic area is reasonable, whether the length of the non-compete agreement, whether it's six months or five years, whether that's reasonable. And then a lot of, sometimes um, an employer and an employee will argue over whether the scope of the restricted activities is reasonable. So I'll give you an example. You know, if a, a high level executive is working for Burger King and they have a prohibition on working in fast food industry, but they leave and they go work for a vegetarian burger place. Is that really a competitor? Can really Burger King say, I have a legitimate business interest in prohibiting you from working for a vegetarian fast food place. So that can become also, um, you know, an issue in litigation. So the first thing you said there was, it's got to be part of a, it's got to be ancillary to another agreement. 
But so is your your standard employment agreement, you know, employment for hire. I'm going to you're going to do this job for me. I'm going to pay you this. We don't have a written agreement, but we you know, it's just your standard employment, you know, we do new employee paperwork. You're a W2 employee. Is that enough of an uh, of a you know, a contract or agreement to, to for it to be ancillary to or do you have to have a written employment contract with someone? I mean, you don't have to have a written employment agreement with anyone in Texas, but I think it would be really, really foolish not to have a written agreement for a number of reasons. Um, you know, for specifically when it relates to non-compete agreements, what you want to have in writing is a promise that you're going to provide employee confidential information. And that's what's going to be consideration. In other words, you're saying I'm, as an employer, going to share some of my confidential information with you. And in return, because that information is valuable, you will agree that when you leave my employment, you're not going to compete with me in a certain area for a certain period of time. And it really helps to have that in writing, you know, because otherwise you're going to end up in a lawsuit and there's going to be an argument whether the employer actually provided confidential information, whether they wanted the employee to keep that information confidential, number of other issues. So it wouldn't necessarily be the... Um... The employment, the, the the regular employment agreement, it would be like a confidentiality agreement or something like that that would be ancillary to the, you know, that would be ancillary. Correct. But the non-compete Correct. would be ancillary too, yeah. The, the, no, you're okay. right, you're right. It is the promise of confidential information. It's not the actual, I'm going to employ you. Okay. It, that, that in Texas is not enough to support a non-compete. So if the okay. only promise that the employer is making is, I am going to employ you at will, um, that's not sufficient to for the employer to require not to be restricted. So like in the example you used for confidential information, um, how specialized does that confidential information have to be to qualify? Um, so, you know, I mean, you know, what I pay, you know, my executive team is confidential, maybe, you know, um, to the extent that the NLRB will let me call it confidential but let's just say that you know it's something like that or something you know it, that doesn't really affect the outcome of our product or our service does it have to be tied to that or can it just be stuff that we don't want out there in public how how specialized how related to that job does confidential have to be so the confidential information definition i mean it's pretty broad it can be anything and everything that's truly confidential or proprietary to the company it doesn't even have to relate to the employee's job i mean normally of course it does because otherwise why would the employer give it to the employee but in in litigation what happens is that the employer will argue that everything they gave to the employee was confidential from you know financial information to customer names to processes and methods used in their job, you know, performance. And the employee will usually argue nothing that was given to me is confidential. And the reality is the truth is usually somewhere in between. And so even if the employment agreement defines confidential information very broadly, which usually does, the paragraph is usually, you know, half a page long, listing everything under the sun as confidential. An employee who tries to challenge that provision in court and, and claim that they did not receive any confidential information is going to have a really hard time proving that they didn't get any confidential information. Usually the employer, especially if an employee worked there for you know a year, some, some substantial period of time, 
usually an employer will be able to show that they shared at least some confidential information with the employee. So beyond confidentiality agreements, are there other kinds of agreements that you see these non-competes attached to? So a lot of times they're included in stock option or restricted stock unit agreements. And a lot of employees don't even realize that they are agreeing to non-compete restraints because a lot of times those units are being awarded electronically. So an employee gets a letter saying, hey, we're giving you stock. (laughs) The employee says, great. They go online, they click, 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 just to accept their units. And they of course don't read the fine print and the fine print typically will have some sort of non-compete restraints that um, either allow the employer to claw back the units awarded to the employee or have some other penalties related to the non-compete restrictions. And I will tell you over the last few years, several employees have tried to challenge this, you know, agreements that are entered online are called click wrap agreements. Mm-hmm. Um, and several employees have challenged those saying, I didn't know I signed it this way. Um, I, don't, I don't remember clicking the button, agreeing to it. And the courts have not been sympathetic to this argument. They said, listen, the company has the electronic record of you receiving the letter saying you've been awarded units. You going to the page where you were instructed to go and you clicking on the button. And that's sufficient for you to have, you know, to have accepted the not compete restraints. That's where we typically see them. I see. Okay. So then on consideration, does that mean it's got to be, you know, when I, most people, when they think about consideration, they're thinking about money, cash in, in hand, but can the consideration be as simple as I'm, we're going to give you this job and we're going to let you come to work every day? Uh, and is that consideration enough or does it have to be more than that? So no, and you have you have to be careful. I know a lot of employees will go online and like try to figure out what the law is themselves, right? Then there are a lot of articles out there about non-competes. And consideration, what is appropriate consideration for a non-compete promise is different than every state. In Texas, money is not enough. There are some other states where giving an employee $100 in exchange for them signing a non-compete would be sufficient to make that agreement valid. In Texas, you could literally give an employee $10 million for a non-compete, and that would not be sufficient. That would not make that agreement valid. Instead, what the courts consider to be proper consideration in Texas is confidential information, goodwill of the company, specialized training. Those are kind of the three you know, large buckets of what the courts will look at. Um, did the employee receive specialized training from the employer in exchange for the promise not to compete? Did the employee receive confidential information? Did the employee receive the goodwill of the company? Um, If those things are present, most likely the courts will find that there is sufficient consideration to support a non-compete agreement. What is the goodwill of the company? How do you demonstrate that? Uh, You know, because, I mean, if this is a former employee, now they've got bad will. So what's, I mean, what is goodwill? What does that really mean? Well, it's 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 an interesting area of the law, I can tell you this on this issue, because there are a lot of cases that talk about goodwill, but very few that actually have rendered decision on that particular issue. But goodwill is reputation of the company, right? So companies will argue, look, let's say General Electric, right, has a lot of goodwill. Everyone knows it's a good company, has been around for a long time, you know, generally has really good reputation with customers, quality of products, you know, customer service. Um, that's the goodwill of the company. And so the company will say, we've shared that goodwill with you 
you know, you were able to perform your duties and grow in your career because you had access to our goodwill. And so in exchange for that, we want you not to compete with us. So you got to put you got to put that you worked for Imperative Information Group on your LinkedIn profile and people think more highly of you because of that. And that's that's part of the goodwill or just the fact that we've got the trust of our customers and people can come to work for for us and have work to do because of the trust our customers have in us. And, and so you got your experience based on our on our reputation. That's well, that's kind of what goodwill boils down to. Yes, correct. And I, I've certainly I've I've definitely been in a case where a company that had some really major issues tried to argue that they had a lot of goodwill, and that became the key issue in the case. Is oh. wait, hold a second, hold on a second. Are you saying you have a good reputation? Well, let's take a look at this reputation and see if it's actually goodwill or badwill. <laughs> oh, wow. Okay. So so it could be an issue then. Uh, it could be a legit. It's not just a checkbox thing. It really means something in some cases. In some cases, yes. Okay. And let's take a quick break. Good Morning HR is brought to you by Imperative, premium background checks with fast and friendly service. If you're an HRCI or SHRM certified professional, this episode of Good Morning HR has been pre-approved for one half hour of recertification credit. To obtain the recertification information, visit goodmorninghr.com and click on Research Credits. Then select episode 50 and enter the keyword non-compete. That's N-O-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E. And if you're looking for even more recertification credit, check out the webinars page at imperativeinfo.com. I have 10 hours of recorded webinars, each approved for an hour of recertification credit by both HRCI and SHRM. Three are even approved for HRCI business credit, and one qualifies for ethics credit. For instance, one of my most popular webinars is What to Do When an Employee Gets Arrested. You can access that webinar and all my recorded webinars for free at imperativeinfo.com. And now back to my conversation with Lisa Dolge. So, where are they? Where when you're talking to your employer side clients, uh, where are non-competes best used? What what are the scenarios where, where you think they're really defensible and they really serve the employ, employer well? Well, I think certainly with upper management, key employees. And when I say key employees, those are people that have access to really important confidential information within the company. I think, um, you know, your CFO, your chief marketing officer, people that are involved in strategy decisions, people that are involved in product development, people that if they went to a competitor could really hurt the company. And I think that's the first question that the employer has to ask themselves and be honest with the answer, right? If this person leaves, assuming they're good at their job, will they hurt my business? And if the answer is yes, then it's probably worth you know, exploring whether a non-compete agreement with that person will make sense and, and what the restraint should be in, in that non-compete. That would be the starting point. And so what, why would an employer uh, try to use the non-compete to make it harder for lower wage, you know, less significant as far as contribution to the overall organization? as individual contributors, um, 
tie those people down with a non-compete? So I think the two kind of um, the two patterns that I have seen with overbroad non-competes is one is just somebody being lazy, right? Who, whoever is putting those agreements in place, just one size fits all, right? We have a standard agreement. We're not really going to consider what exactly you do for the company. This is our standard employment agreement. Go ahead and sign it. And that, that agreement will have the same restrictions for CEO as they have for, you know, a receptionist. So that's not a good approach because it obviously should not be one size fit all fits all. And if you end up enforcing the agreement in court, that can hurt, right? Because it shows that you haven't really considered why do you need an on-compete. So that's that's one pattern that I've seen is just, just being lazy about it. And the second pattern that I have seen is the company saying, you know what, why not? What's what's the negative, right? What what I don't see any drawback in using an overbroad non-compete. I'm the employer. I have the power in this situation. And if the employee really wants to challenge it, let them spend money on an attorney and and challenge it in court if they have the money. And so those kind of the two attitudes that I've seen, and I think both work to a degree until they don't. You know, you'll get that one employee that will actually challenge the agreement and possibly cost a lot of money to the company and litigation fees and and um, time spent on litigating an issue that could have been prevented had the company been more uh, you know, careful about using non-compete agreements. So if an employee has a non-compete agreement and the employer terminates them for cause or without cause, we just do a layoff and, you know, we just got a, you know, legitimate business need and we cut them off. We just have to cut some heads. And so uh, uh, we lay somebody off. Does that affect the validity of the, of the non-compete? Not in Texas. Doesn't matter. It does not matter. In other states, it does. In other states, it, it actually makes a difference whether an employee was resigned voluntarily or was terminated. But in Texas, it doesn't matter. So, and I think a lot of employees actually think it does, right? They, they think, oh, I got canned, so my non-compete is not valid. And then they go work for a competitor and they get that cease and desist letter. And, and they find out that, wait a second, that, that termination didn't actually terminate the non-compete. So let's talk about those cease and desist letters. Okay, so I'm the employer. <laughs> um, my former employee signed a non-compete, has gone to work for a direct competitor, just to make it easy. There's no, there's, you know, it's not fuzzy here. These guys are really our, comp- our, our competition. How likely, or, you know, well, if I want to enforce it, what what are the steps? And then talk about how likely I am to be successful uh, and, 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 you know, really what it's going to cost me in order to get to the point where I'm successful in, in, in enforcing it. Well, in a typical lawyer fashion, I will tell you it depends. <laughs> but I will tell you what it depends on. It depends okay. on how good your agreement is. If you have a really rock solid agreement that's reasonable, the proper consideration has been provided to the employee, all the things have been fulfilled, you have a really strong position in enforcing that agreement against the employee. If you have an agreement that you pulled off of legal zoom, or you kind of took somebody else's agreement, rewrote it yourself because you, you thought it would be cheaper to do it that way, which I have seen many companies do. And then you come to an attorney and you say, I would like to enforce the agreement. 
you may not be <laughs> you may not be in a position, you know, to to enforce it because some key terms are missing or it's too broad or or there is some other problem with that document. So it really pays to make sure you have the right agreement in place so that if you ever have to enforce it as an employer, you actually have a valid document that you can take to an attorney and a strong cease and desist letter can go out attaching the agreement, showing that the agreement is is uh, valid. Um, that will have a lot of force and effect. And these agreements go on forever. I mean, from the time I signed the employment uh, to the time I'm terminated, even if it's 10 years later, I'm terminated or you know, voluntarily or involuntary. That original one I signed 10 years ago still applies? Most of the time, unless your job changed so drastically or there were some other intervening factors. Yes, an agreement, an non-compete agreement, even if it was signed 10 or 15 years ago, may still apply when you leave. And I've actually seen many employees that forgot they signed an agreement when they first joined the company. And then they're leaving 10, 12 years later. And all of a sudden, they're getting a cease and desist letter with an agreement that they didn't even remember signing. And so, as as, as you know, uh, Imperative is a background screening company, and we're all, but we're also licensed private investigators, and we do investigations for our, some of our clients. And I will I'll get that call. Hey, Joe quit work here last week, and the rumor is he's working for XYZ Company, a competitor, and he's violating his non compete. Um, but how do we find out if it's really if he's really working for them? And and then you know I'm like well. You know, the reality is, is the way to do it is to figure, you know, is to, you know, get proof that he's working there. I mean, there's a, you know, we can do surveillance and that's expensive and time consuming. It it may well not get you what you want, uh, you know, especially with people working remote. Um, Or you can, you know, we can try to pretext the other company, but Imperative won't do a pretext. We refuse to do anything that, you know, that, that, you know, where we're lying or misrepresenting anything. But you could hire a PI to do that. But so how do most employers figure out when, you know, are they just waiting for LinkedIn to get updated or are they, you know, how do they figure out when somebody is is violating their non-compete? Yeah, absolutely. Mike, I've had a few cases where I had to hire a PI to go and find out if somebody was violating their non-compete and, and you know, take photos of them going into the company right building. But typically the way they find out is by mistake, right? So somebody emails that employee at their old email address when they were meaning <laughs> to email them. I mean, classic. That's classic. So they're the new vendor or the new customer or somebody is emailing them at the old email address. And if the company is monitoring that email, they find out or they hear it from customers. So if it's, you know, if it's a specialized area, um, they find out from customers, the customers are telling them, hey, so-and-so showed up and was trying to sell me product and they're working for another company. Um, those are the two classic ways. Or if it's, you know, if it's a sales position, I mean, there's no way to keep that under wraps. Salespeople know what all of them are doing. And so it's, um, or LinkedIn updates or even press releases. Um, you know, sometimes a company will do a press release, not knowing that the employee they just hired actually has a non-compete. And so the old employer, if they're monitoring it, they will find out. But typically it's mistake or, or customer will, customer will say, I've been contacted by so, you know, so and so and they're now working for company X. Oh, gotcha. So. I, I'm the employer and I figured out that, hey, you know, Joe has gone to work for some other company. And um, 
you mentioned the cease and desist. Is that typically the first step? Uh, and who do you send that cease and desist to? To that employee or to that to that new employer or who? Well, typically the letter will go out to both. The employee saying, FYI, you have a non-compete. Here it is. You can't work for that company. And it will go to their employer and telling them, FYI, this person has a non-compete and you hired them and you know they're in, in violation of their non-compete agreement. Generally speaking, I mean, but, you know, it depends on on many factors what you would actually put in the letter. One of the things that you always look at is when you have a, an employee that left and went to work for a competitor, you kind of want to know as the former employer whether they took any confidential information. So that's another kind of investigation that you do prior to sending out a cease and desist letter is you want to make sure you know, you know, did they download anything? Did they email something to themselves? Did they upload it to their cloud account? Because that's really important. It's not just them going to a competitor, but possibly taking your confidential information and going to a competitor. Like customer list, vendor list, processes and procedures, things like that, 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 that forms, things like that. Yes, yes. And a lot of employees, I mean, you know, some will do it intentionally, of course, but some just don't realize that what they're taking is confidential because they think, well, if I worked on it, right, if I created this PowerPoint, then it belongs to me. And it's not, that's not how the law works. So it's not always intentional, but it certainly doesn't, you know, doesn't make the former employer feel warm and fuzzy when they find out that some of their information walked out the door to a competitor. So you you send that cease and desist letter, and the employee tells you to go pound sand. And I'm not gonna, you know, I'm not gonna, I'm gonna, you know, I'm not gonna respond. Um, what happens then? Well, I, you know, an employer can file a lawsuit at that point and seek an injunction. And so, an injunction is a court order that tells the employee that they cannot violate their non-compete agreement. Okay, and so you then when you so you ask for an injunction, and that means you've got an attorney now, and the employee is probably going to going to have to go get an attorney, and um, so people are spending money, and the attorneys are all smiling. So <laughs> then the what, um, and then you go to court, and is this a jury trial type thing, or is this just a, a bench trial where the judge sits there and makes a decision? How does that work? So it's a two-step process in the beginning, and it, it doesn't involve a jury yet, right? In the beginning of the case, so the first thing that you do is you try to get a temporary restraining order. And that's it's similar to an injunction. It's just very short. It's only for 14 days. And basically, the argument from the employer side is, look, I have an employee. They signed this agreement. They agreed not to compete. And I found out they are competing. Here's evidence of competition. And you attach those emails from customers, whatever evidence you have, right? The LinkedIn profile, whatever, whatever it is. And it's usually verified. So somebody on behalf of the employer says this is true and correct under oath. And you go to the judge. And depending on what county you are in in Texas, um, you can get a hearing the day after you file a lawsuit. And you don't even have to give the other side more than the two-hour notice in Dallas County, for example. So... If wow. I represent an employer, I can file a lawsuit, ask for a temporary restraining order, and have a hearing set within a few hours, and just tell the employee, here's your hearing, show up, bring an attorney if you have one. <laughs> and then wow. you go in front of the judge, and the judge will consider the application, and they'll decide whether to give the TRO or enter the restraining order or not. 
And then the next step would be the injunction hearing. And so at the injunction hearing, you actually get to bring witnesses, right? You can have the president of the company testify, here's our business, here's what employee did for us, here's what they're doing for a competitor, it's the exact same thing, here's the confidential information that we shared with them. And then the employee can get on the stand and say, well, what I'm doing is different or, you know, they can they can provide their own testimony. So it's like a mini trial at the injunction hearing. It can take anywhere from a couple hours to several days, um, completely up to the judge. And in between, there can be discovery. So it can be really expensive. It can get really expensive very, very quickly. Um, and at the injunction hearing, the court will decide whether to actually prohibit employee from competing until the time of trial. So that can be an order. If the court decides to enforce the non-compete, that order could stay in place for months. The non-compete, does it apply if I get a completely different kind of job working for a competitor of the company? So let's say I'm an accountant or, uh, you know, uh, let's say I'm the CFO. And uh, I, I decide, God help us, if I'm ever the CFO of any company, that do not buy that company's stock. <laughs> um, but, but let's say that. And then I decide I don't want to do that. I'm going to go be an HR person, um, and uh, because that's the easiest job anybody ever had. And so I'm going to go be the HR person. And you know, I'm not doing anything financial for this new company. Is that competition? Would a non-compete apply in that situation? Or does it have to be related to the kind of work I was doing previously and the kind of confidential information maybe that I had before? It has to be related to the kind of job that you had previously. But but here's the difference between the practice and the, the theory and the practice, right? Legally speaking, company, in your example, a company cannot prohibit you from completely switching tracks, right? They cannot prohibit you from going to work for a competitor in a capacity that is completely different than the capacity you were working you know, for them, in, in the capacity that you were working for them in. But a lot of non-competes, the way they're drafted, they just say you can't go work for a competitor, period. And so what I've seen a lot is you know, kind of trying to explain to the old employer that, listen, the employee is actually working in a different capacity, doing something completely different than what they did for you. And of course, that, that can become complicated, right, because the the employer doesn't have to agree to what you're saying, um, but that is a defense that I'm doing something completely different than what I did for for the former employer, even though I'm working for their direct competitor. Okay, so we that does is that cease and desist letter then does that have to go out or can you just go file that lawsuit as the employer? You can file a lawsuit and sometimes employers will do that. They'll go file a lawsuit right away, especially if they found out that the employee took confidential information because they don't want to give that time to the employee to to do, you know, to, to do something with that confidential information. But I would say most of the time there is a cease and desist letter first. Is, uh, is there any liability for that new employer? I mean, if I hire somebody and they happen to have a, a cease and desist, or not cease, I mean, a non-compete agreement with uh, the previous employer, and they come work for me, and I hire them, either knowing or not knowing that that agreement exists, do I have any liability as the new employer, or is that just between my employee and their former employer? You may be dragged into a lawsuit. So the former employer may sue both the employee and their new employer. And especially if the employee took confidential information. 
that's where I've seen this being really costly to the new employer is they hired someone, that person had an on-compete. Um, they didn't know, but then the, what they really didn't know is that the employee took confidential information. I mean, there are cases out there where the new employer had to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars trying to clean their system and make sure that none of that confidential information was placed by that employee onto their drives and conduct audits and hire forensic people just to kind of, you know, make sure that they're not being tagged with what the employee has done. Uh, but even if absent taking off confidential information, um, just the fact that you hired somebody with a non-compete agreement, especially let's say you got a cease and desist and now you, you're noticed that this employee cannot work for you um, and you continue to employ them. I think that does expose new employers sometimes to, to legal, potentially legal liability, or at the very least being named an defendant and having to hire an attorney and defending against the lawsuit and, you know, being involved in discovery and all that fun, quote unquote stuff. So one last question then. So let's say, you know, we've heard about all these, these low, lower level employees who don't really have any really unique information or really pose a competitive risk out there to uh, an employer. And it sounds like there's a lot of money involved in, in going through this process to, to defend one or to enforce one, uh, a non-compete. So how likely are you seeing employers try to enforce non-competes against, you know, average employees who, you know, making, you know, fifty, sixty thousand dollars a year, but you know, they, they signed a non compete. Are they are those even getting you know, are they really even getting enforced or are employers just hanging those out there just to try to tie employees to them a little closer and make it harder for them to to jump ship? So I mean, I've obviously been following this debate about, you know, I've, and Federal Trade Commission comments and their studies and work groups about how non-compete agreements are being enforced against lower wage employees. There's obviously that case of Jimmy Jones having non-compete, two-year non-compete agreements for sandwich makers. I have personally, in all of my years of practice, have not seen non-compete agreements for hourly employees. So let me start there. So then when you define who is like an average low wage employee, I would say what I've seen are agreements, non-compete agreements that are being enforced against employees that may not make as much money as you would expect, um, like for a high level, right, executive employee, but they have access to client base and they actually are not just violating the non-compete, they're poaching the clients or the allegations mm. made that they're poaching clients. And so like some of the businesses where I've seen non-competes being enforced, against somebody who's not making a lot of money, but is accused of poaching clients would be like hairdressers, right? Mm -hmm. uh, mechanics that work for specialized um, auto shops. So there is a, you know, a niche clientele that want their cars souped up and this mechanics have built relationships and maybe the mechanics, if you look at their compensation, they don't make very much, but they have that goodwill with customers. So I've definitely seen employers go after employees like that to protect the customer base. I haven't okay. seen any employers go after low wage employees that are not going after customers. Not saying it doesn't happen. I just haven't seen that. Yeah. Well, and, and we all know the federal trade commission and all the other three letter organizations in the government love to take the one case and, and the one anecdote and make a, make a big, you know, 
bully pulpit out of it. So, uh, so it's, it's at least good to hear that it's not being really enforced, even if a lot of people are signing those things. But that's all the time we have. Uh, thank you for joining me today, Lisa. Well, thank you for having me. And thank you for listening. You can find previous episodes, show notes, and contact info for our guests at goodmorninghr.com or on Facebook, Instagram, or YouTube. And don't forget to follow us wherever you get your podcast. Rob Upchurch is our technical producer, and I'm Mike Coffey. As always, don't hesitate to reach out if I can be of service to you personally or professionally. I'll see you next week, and until then, be well, do good, and keep your chin up.